Thank you, thank you, Frank. I hope to live up to such a hyperbolic introduction. And um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming. I was expecting two or three people to show up, but I'm really happy to see more people. So as, as, uh, as Francisco explained, there are two narrators in the novel. It's really just one narrator that unfolds into another one. So the first narrator is a, is a young woman writing from her present in Mexico City, and she's writing about her past in New York during the year 2008, um, just before the economic crash. And at the same time, um, as she's writing the novel, um, sort of the, the voice of Gilberto Owen starts to unfold. And Gilberto Owen, um, who, who was a real person, a Mexican poet that lived in Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance, in actually in 1928, just before the economic crash also, um, narrate his past in New York from his last few days alive in Philadelphia in the 1950s. So there's a lot of times, and the, the, the book jumps <clears throat> from the past to the present uh, of each character's life. So I hope you keep up with me. It's, it's, not, it's not easy to, to hear, and so you have to, you have to pay attention. Um, and I'm going to be reading, well, the novel is written in, in short fragments. So I'm going to be reading some of those fragments, um, first from, from the woman's point of view, and then from Gilberto Owen's voice. <clears throat> the boy wakes me up. Do you know where mosquitoes come from, Mama? Where? From the shower. During the day, they're inside the shower, and at night, they bite us. <clears throat> it all began in another city and another life. That's why I can't write this story the way I would like to, as if I were still there, still just only that other person. I find it difficult to talk about streets and faces as if I saw them every day. I can't find the correct verb tenses. I was young. I had strong, slim legs. I would have liked to start the way Hemingway's Immovable Feast ends. <clears throat> in that city, I lived alone in an almost empty apartment. I slept very little. I ate badly without much variety. I had a simple life, a routine. I worked as a reader and translator in a small publishing house dedicated to rescuing foreign gems. Nobody bought them, though, because in such an insular culture, translation was treated with suspicion. But I liked my work, and I believe that for a time I did it well. On Thursdays and Fridays, I did research in libraries, but the first part of the week was reserved for the office. It was a pleasant, comfortable place. And what's more, I was allowed to smoke there. <clears throat> Every Monday, I arrived early, full of enthusiasm, carrying a paper cup brimming with coffee. I would say good morning to Minnie, the secretary, and then to the chief editor, who was the only editor, and therefore the chief. His name was White. I would sit down at my desk, roll a cigarette of Virginia tobacco, and work late into the night. In this house lived two adults, a baby girl and a little boy. <clears throat> we call him the boy now because Although he's older than his sister, he insists that he's not properly big yet. And he's right. 
He's older, but he's still small. He's neither the big boy nor the little boy, so he's just the boy. A few days ago, my husband stepped on a dinosaur when he was coming downstairs, and there was a cataclysm. Tears, screaming, the dinosaur was shattered beyond repair. Now my T-Rex really has been extincted, sobbed the boy. Sometimes we feel like two paranoid Gullivers permanently walking on tiptoe so as not to wake anyone up, so as not to step on anything important and fragile. <clears throat> In winter, there were windstorms, but I used to wear miniskirts because I was young. I wrote letters to my acquaintances telling them about my rambles, describing my legs swathed in great heights, my body wrapped in a red coat with deep pockets. I wrote letters about the cold wind that caressed those legs, compared the freezing air to the bristle of a badly shaved chin, as if the air and a pair of gray legs walking along streets were literary material. When a person has lived alone for a long time, <clears throat> the only way to confirm that they still exist is to express activities and things in an easily shared syntax. This face, these bones, this mouth, this hand that writes. Now I write at night, when the two children are asleep and it's acceptable to smoke, drink, and let drafts in. Before, I used to write all the time, at any hour, because my body belonged to me. My legs were long, strong, and slim. It was right to offer them, to whomever, to writing. In that apartment, there were only five pieces of furniture, bed, kitchen table, bookcase, desk, and chair. In fact, the desk, the chair, and the bookcase came later. When I moved in, I found only a bed and a folding aluminum table. There was also a bathtub, but I don't know if that counts as furniture. Little by little, the space began to fill up, though always with temporary objects. The books from the libraries spread the weekends piled high by the bed and disappeared the following Monday when I took them to the office to write reports on them. A silent novel, so as not to wake the children. Sometimes I bought wine, although the bottle didn't last a single sitting. The bread, lettuce, cheese, whiskey, and coffee in that order lasted a bit longer and a little bit longer than all those five together, the oil and soy sauce. But the pens and lighters, for example, came and went like headstrong teenagers determined to demonstrate the complete autonomy. I knew it wasn't a good idea to place the least trust in household objects. As soon as we become accustomed to the silent present presence of a thing, it gets broken or disappears. My ties to the people around me were also marked by those two modes of impermanence, breaking up or disappearing. All that has survived from that period are the echoes of certain conversations, a handful of recurrent ideas, poems I liked and read over and over until I knew them by heart. Everything else is a later elaboration. It's not possible for my memories of that life to have more substance. They are scaffolding, structures, empty houses. In this big house, I don't have a place to write. On my work table, there are diapers, toys, transformers, bibs, rattles, things I still can't figure out. Tiny objects take up all the space. I cross the living room and sit on the sofa with my computer on my lap. The boy comes in. What are you doing, Mama? Writing. 
Writing just a book, Mama? Just writing. Novels need a sustained breath. That's what novelists want. No one knows exactly what it means, but they all say, a sustained breath. I have a baby and a boy. They don't let me breathe. Everything I write has to be in short bursts. I'm short of breath. I'm going to write a book too, the boy says, while we're preparing dinner and waiting for his father to come back from the office. His father hasn't got an office, but he has a lot of appointments, and sometimes he says, I'm going to the office now. The boy says his father works in the workery. The baby doesn't say anything, but one day she's going to say, Papa. My husband's an architect. He's been designing the same house for almost a year now, over and over, with changes that are, to my mind, imperceptible. The house is going to be built in Philadelphia quite soon, when my husband finally sends off the definitive plans. In the meantime, they pile up on his desk. Sometimes I leaf through them, feigning interest. But I don't find it easy to imagine what it's all about. It's difficult to project all those lines into a third dimension. He also leafs through the things I write. What's your book going to be called? I ask the boy. It's going to be, Papa always comes back from the workery in a bad mood. In our house, the electricity cuts out. The fuses have to be changed very frequently. It's a common word in our everyday lexicon now. The electricity cuts out and the boy says, we've got fuzzy fuses. I don't think there were any fuses in that apartment, in that other city. I never saw a meter. The electricity never cut out. I never changed a light bulb. They were all fluorescent. They lasted forever. A Chinese student lived out his life in the opposite window. He used to study until very late at night until his dim light, under his dim light. I also used to stay up late reading. At three in the morning with oriental precision, he turned out the light in his room. He would switch on the bathroom light and four minutes later turn it off again. He never switched on the one in his bedroom. He performed his private rituals in the dark. I liked to wonder about him. Did he get completely undressed before getting into bed? Did he touch himself? Did he do it under the covers or standing by the bed? What was the eye of his cock like? Was he thinking about something or watching me, wondering about him through my kitchen window? When the nocturnal ceremony had finished, I would turn out my light and leave the apartment. I didn't like sleeping alone in that apartment. I lived on the seventh floor. I would lend my apartment to people and seek out other rooms, borrowed armchairs, shared beds in which to spend the night. I gave copies of my keys to a lot of people. They gave me copies of theirs. Reciprocity, not generosity. On Fridays, though not every Friday, Moby would turn up. He was the first to have keys. We almost always met in the doorway. I'd be going out to the library and he would arrive to have a bath because in his house, in a town an hour and a half away from the city, there was no hot water. In the beginning, he didn't stay to sleep, and I don't know where he did sleep, but he had baths in my tub, and in exchange, brought me a plant or cooked me something and put it in the fridge. He left notes that I would find in the evening when I came back to eat dinner. I used your shampoo, thanks, M. 
Moby had a weekend job in the city. He forged and sold rare books that he himself produced on a homemade printing press. Well-to-do intellectuals bought them from him at rather unreasonable prices. prices. He also reprinted unique copies of American classics in equally unique formats, amazing the obsession Americans have for the unique. He had an illustrated copy of Leaves of Grass, a manuscript of Walden's he'd written out in pencil, and an audio tape of the essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson read by his Polish grandmother. But the majority of his authors were Ohio poets, Ohio poets of the 20s and 30s. That was his niche. He developed a theory of hyper-specialization that was working well for him. Of course, it was not he but Adam Smith who had developed that theory, but he believed the theory was his own. I used to say, that's Adam Smith's pin theory, and Moby would reply, I'm talking about American poets. The book he was trying to sell around that time was called Can We Hold Hands Out Here? He had 10 copies and gave me one as a present. It was via a very bad poet from Cleveland, Ohio, like Moby. From time to time, before going back home, he came to my apartment to have a second bath, and we'd eat the leftovers of whatever he'd cooked on Friday. We talked about the books he'd sold. We talked about books in general. Sometimes, on Sundays, we made love. My husband reads some of this and asks who Moby is. Nobody, I say. Moby is a character. <clears throat> okay, now I'm going to jump like 50 pages. And I'm going to read a few fragments from, <clears throat> from Gilberto Owen. Um, the fragments that I chose to read uh, from Gilberto Owen's life are mostly about his encounters with Federico García Lorca, whom, as Frank mentioned, lived in New York at the time. So Federico García Lorca arrived in New York in 1928, and he arrived kind of like a, like a star already. He, he was a well-known poet in, <clears throat> in Spain and had readers in in America, too, and he was immediately welcomed into intellectual circles, uh, both the circles of the Harlem Renaissance and the circles of white intellectuals in Columbia University. So he had a kind of um, easy entrance. And Owen, on the contrary, was quite invisible and probably, I would imagine, quite envious. So he, uh, at least my Owen, my, my fictionalized version of him, uh, makes, makes fun of, of Garcia Lorca. Um. <clears throat> it all happened in another city in another life. It was the summer of 1928. I was working as a clerk in the Mexican consulate in New York, writing official reports on the price of Mexican peanuts in the US market, which was about to crash. Almost 25 years have gone by since then, even if I wanted to, I couldn't write the story as if I still lived there and were th that thin, young man, full of enthusiasm, translating Emily Dickinson and William Carlos Williams, wrapped in a gray bathrobe. I would have liked to start the way Fitzgerald's The Crack-Up begins. I lived a few blocks from Federico Garcia Lorca, but he used to spend a whole day in a student hall at 296 Broadway writing his poems. I sometimes bumped into him on the way to the subway and we'd shake hands. He was a plump, 
pampered little Spaniard with a tight little ass who virtuously complained about his bohemian life in the big city, doves and swarms of coins, buildings under perpetual construction, vomiting multitudes, alienation, solitude. The problem with Federico's poems was, was that they all ended up being Federicoized. The Spaniolette, as my friend Salvador Novo used to call him, overindulged in his strange metaphors. He converted them into one-way streets, unique systems of equivalence. He liked Harlem and the blacks. He didn't speak English. His parents sent him $100 each month, which he fittered away in the city bars. I liked the Swedish and the Yankee woman. I studied English all damn day. I liked tertulias, cafe conversations a la Henry James with generic Aryans, French, German, and that speechless, perpendicular, unsociable English race as James describes them. On one occasion, I wrote a letter to Javier Villarrutia saying much the same thing, but he never got the joke, perhaps because prophetic jokes aren't funny. The worst defect of the Yankee, I told him, is his incapacity for bad-mouthing people. In a certain sense, I was right, but then in that life, I was unaware of the Yankee's most incisive ability. I was living opposite Morningside Park among blacks who ate watermelon and fried chicken every Sunday, just like Mexicans, and an inordinate number of crickets, which made the United States look like a main plaza of a town in Sinaloa. The Yankee's greatest virtue, as I know now, is not saying anything, feeding the silence until the other person begins to dig himself a grave in the nearest cemetery, conscious of his inability to keep an appointment at five in the afternoon, or to appreciate the joy of Sundays, or to be a good sport at all times, and so on. But Federico, the Spaniolette, and his beautiful asslet, as Salvador Novo used to say, Federico had one or two virtues. During my first months in Manhattan, we used to see each other every day in a diner over on 108th Street. We met because Emilio Amero, who could never manage to stick one idea to another, had asked us both to collaborate with him on the script for his next film. I don't know what Federico's motivation was, but I accepted because it was a way to speak Spanish with someone from outside the consulate once a week. It was an unfilmable script about voyages to the moon. I wanted endless journeys in an elevator filling up with eyes. Federico, deeply resentful, rewrote sequences by Buñuel and Dali in a soft-boiled New York style. And in that way, we began to become friends. We ended up having so little to talk about that Federico decided to invite another poet to join us in order to criticize him afterwards. To be honest, that's how we began to become close friends. We Hispanics have always been good at that. Spanish is a language that lends itself to fault-finding, and for that reason, we are bad critics and good enemies of our friends. The poet was a thoroughly decent Yankee called Joshua, but we addressed him by his surname, Zvorsky, and between ourselves, when he wasn't there, he was simply Z. He had a nose as long and phallic as the island of Manhattan, and huge egg-shaped spectacles which made his face look exactly like the sexual organs of a cult. He was beginning a long poem, as long as Ezra Pound's cantos, he explained. Federico didn't understand a single word of what Z said, since he spoke English as if he were saying mass in Yiddish, so I used to translate for them. Not that I understood much. The poem will be called That, 
explained the poet, because a little boy, when he's learning how to talk and enumerate the world, always says, that dog, that lollipop, and so forth and so on. And me. He says that his book is going to be called That, because a little boy always says, that perro, that paleta, or some such thing. Federico's greatest second virtue was <clears throat> that he always got excited when he grasped a new idea. But then straight away, he'd be filled with disillusion. That was his greatest virtue. When the Yankee poet had gone, we talked about Gide and Valérie. However, differently, we spoke the language as Spanish speakers. Our close ties with Latin and Greek gave us a sense of superiority. We were the heirs of, to a noble linguistic past. English, in contrast, was the barbaric bastard son of Latin, constantly gloating over its discoveries, the demiurgic function of articles, inventing the world by enunciating it. The only ones worth the effort are Eliot and Joyce, I used to say, and Williams, Pound, and Dickinson, too. Federico liked Langston Hughes and had just discovered Nella Larson. Our friend Z was a dog and a lollipop. <clears throat> Federico and I decided to found a group inspired by our friend Z, perhaps at his expense, but not necessarily to his detriment. It was Federico's idea, but I was becoming his sidekick, so I not only agreed, but got fully involved and even contributed some ideas. In spite of his insistence on including Nella Larson, we finally decided that there would be only two members and that the group would be called Ojetivicios, a word unlike objectivists that Federico could pronounce. The idea was that I'd make a quick fire translation of Z's poems while he was reading, and then Federico would recite or sing them in public places. His theory was that everything rhymes in Andalusian, so it would be easy to keep the spirit and the impossible rhymes of Z's poems, even or above all, if we made some purely phonetic translations. He could, moreover, we could, moreover, ask for a little money in exchange. Z, of course, knew nothing of our plans and thought we wanted just to hear him. So when we asked him to do another reading of the verses from that, that we'd like so much, he came along to college walk, thoroughly content and well-dressed. This time he explained that in the extract he was trying, that he was going to read, he was trying to make object speak. I explained to Federico. He says, here, objects are going to speak. How can objects speak, said Federico. Federico is asking, how come do things speak? Z gave us a slightly paternal look and said with absolute solemnity, I'm trying to make the table eat grass, although I can't make it eat grass. He says, I told Federico, shut up and sit on the grass. Z took out his papers and began to read. The poem began with a rather strange verb, behoove, and had a rhyme system that seemed at odds with its meaning, whatever that actually was. I think that more than what his poems meant, I was, it was interesting to see what they did. I tried my best to translate for Federico. <clears throat> At the beginning, he seems to be talking about hoovers, those machines for vacuuming the floor that make an infernal noise. But he might have said behoover, so it's to do with the action of vacuuming. You know how English is always making the bloody nouns into verbs. So the objects ask to be vacuumed by a hoover or something like that. 
And after that, there's a bit about whiskying, another damned noun verb. And then there's something kind of biblical about infinite locusts, or maybe it's locos. Then it goes dam, or perhaps palm, and something about weed. And the line ends, this accordion to fuck us. Probably because he'd misunderstood me, that last bit excited Federico, who was taking careful notes for the next meeting of the Ojetivicios. I continued. The last four lines are the ones he read to us before, you know, about the way time changes us. They're magnificent. I'd better try to translate them on paper and let you know. In the meanwhile, you get down all the important words and then we'll see what we can do. The good thing was that Z didn't understand Spanish and Federico only pretended to understand me. So there was no way I'd end up looking like an idiot. Thank you.